Well, good morning. Let me, let me start with that. My name is Eric Thien. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast, and it's good to have you all here. If you're joining us online, I also want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here with us and jumping in. Um, we, uh, man, just coming out of that, there's, there's this really... Um, there's just this really powerful way in which the people of God get to come together and, and shout out and, and proclaim things on behalf of what God is doing in our lives, but also as intercession. Um, and that, that um, you know, that line about the landmines where children play should definitely hit home as we think about some of the things going on globally. And I don't even want to say that as if that's unique because there's plenty of communities that have been walking with and through that um, over the last few years. It's not just um, unique to the Ukraine incident, but um, we do want to pray for them this morning. But I also want, what I want to do is um, let you all know just real quick, uh, many of you have asked us what, what is our response to Ukraine. Obviously, we had a moment of lament and we've been in prayer for this and encouraging as many people to pray. Um, Believe it or not, we've had probably eight or so people who have connections to the Ukraine in our congregation right now. Some of them have been on the field in the Ukraine and some for significant periods of time or they're connected to. There's a couple of mission organizations that are represented here in our congregation as well. They have connections to the Ukraine and so kind of the idea is we're allowing the engagement team to sort through all of those things and decide what the best response is that we want to rally behind and move towards. So just keep your eyes and ears open. There will be something coming for you to get involved in, possibly uh, to donate to, to, to involve yourself, spread the word about, um, but certainly just be in prayer for the intensifying situation that's happening there. Um, and before we jump in, I'll do a quick moment of prayer as well. I also wanted to just kind of um, transition kind of in a little bit of a different um, gear. Uh, Women's History Month, this month, yeah? Yeah? Um, and so it's kind of like a little bit by design, but also just by default of the way the circumstances have gone, that we will be interacting that with what we're um, talking about today through righteous resistance. Before we get there, um, let me go ahead and pray, as I mentioned before, um, just as we, uh, as we think about those who are, who are hurting throughout the, the globe. So Lord, thank you for um, the power of your presence and, the, and the, uh, the way in which shalom has its opportunity to come. Lord, the word that kept coming to me this morning as I thought was, Lord, I long for the day when weapons of war could be um, flattened and turned into plows and turned into buildings and turned into uh, foundations and gardening tools and all of the things needed for cultivation of life. But God, as we sang and as we affirm today, we are not there yet. And so we sit on this side of the fullness of redemption, asking for you to make us a part of that redemption, Lord, in whatever way and whatever capacity possible. Uh, But God, we pray for your peace that like it was in Eden as it will be in the day at the banquet table in the new heavens and the new kingdom, that the lamb and the lion will lay at peace together. So Lord, we ask for that to touch here on earth as it is in heaven. And so, um, Lord, we hand this over to you uh, in, in grief, but also in hopeful expectation that you alone can make a way for things to be made right. And we pray for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, many of you um, know about uh, Women's History Month. Many of you may not know that in this next week, starting Wednesday, is a holiday called Purim. Purim is celebrated um, by the the Jewish faith, and it has been for a very long time. So right at the intersection of women's history and Purim is Queen Esther. 
because uh, Purim actually commemorates the biblical story captured in the book of Esther. It's the moment when the Jews are saved from persecution and, and at a time when they may have been completely eliminated during the uh, Persian Empire captivity. Now today, the celebration of Purim, if you're not familiar with it, inside of the Jewish faith looks more like kind of a Jewish version of Halloween or a carnival, like you would think of Mardi Gras, where people dress up and wear masks and uh, hang out. So there's costumes, there's cookies, and all of the costumes and cookies uh, kind of harken back and have symbolic reference to the book of Esther and the establishment of the holiday that they call Purim. The reading of the story is brought to life. They read the story of Esther every year. It is this important to them. And during this uh, reading, they would actually bring it to life because the crowd would interact whenever Esther or another hero enters, Mordecai, whoever that might be, the crowd cheers. Would you cheer with me? (laughs) Woo! Esther. But, when a villain comes on stage, as they do, you say the name Haman, and everyone goes, boo. You guys are getting it. Now, I actually forgot it uh, in my car. I had an object lesson, a big um, bucket of popcorn from a movie theater uh, that I went to go see a movie this last week with a friend of mine. And the idea is this. I want you to see this as we go through this book, because it's going to be a summary. It plays out very intentionally by the person who helped write this and kind of the way that they create it for it to play out like a drama, like you've gone to a movie and that you've entered yourself into the narrative of Esther and the story going on. And like such, it would have all of these different plot twists and turns and kind of ironic movements. And I'm going to point those out to you, um, even without the popcorn bucket here with me today. But that's what I want you to see is this kind of theatrical um, playwright and, and in which the, the crowd would say boo or um, would cheer for those who are uh, in involved in it. The story is very well noted for its depiction of strong females, specifically two queens uh, who resist, as our series says, righteous resistance, a buffoon-like but very dangerous king. Through great courage, Esther takes advantage of this moment that God has ordained to rescue many people and and allow them to live. Now, we're not as familiar with this um, as the Jewish people are because it doesn't have the same prominence in the Christian faith. Like I said, every year, just like we do Advent and Easter, the, the story of Esther is read on a regular basis. But we did do this series. I wanted to mention, um, as we do an overview today, we did do a series on the book of Esther. I think we took five or six weeks, um, kind of a, a, a couple of chapters at a time, and I would encourage you to check it out. I also will say, in my summary, I can't do it justice. So please read it this week. If you get a chance, it's not super long. It reads out like a complete story from beginning to end. Um, over Wednesday through Thursday um, is the, uh, the holiday of prayer. So I want to challenge you this day um, to go and read that. As we give this, what I want to do is raise to the surface this idea of righteous resistance that Esther enacts. Now what I want us to do first is open up our Bibles here to Esther chapter 1. Um, we're going to start in verse 10. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it there now if you want to click on it. And of course, we'll have it up on the screen for you. Um, Also, by the way, I realize we don't have like Bibles, physical Bibles laying around. And so we've ordered a few of those. So if there's anyone here who is like, I need a Bible um, just to have with me on a regular basis, please let us know. And we'll probably start to put those out on a regular basis just so that they're available. Now, Esther uh, chapter 1, this takes place after the Babylonian captivity that we call the exile. The Persian king Xerxes decides that he's going to throw this giant party. It's a 180-day party. 
And it's huge. It's lavish. It's decadent. It's opulent. He pulls out all of the decorations that you would think a king might want to bring out with the golden goblets, decorations of gold. Fancy tapestries are on display. The wine was flowing, as it says, in keeping with the king's liberality. And so you have all this symbolic kind of, these things are meant to represent the king's personality. And this is who he is, kind of this liberal, like, yeah, let's, as much wine as you can drink out of the, the, the fanciest things possible, and we're going to do it for as long as we can possibly sustain this party. And in the midst of a drunken decision, this idea comes to the king. Esther 1, verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, two ideas on this crown. There's kind of two kind of takes on it. It's meant once, you know, come out wearing the crown to exemplify your royal status because you're not just um, any, any woman. You are the queen here. But the second one, and I think this is probably more likely, is that um, what is being inferred here is that she comes out wearing the crown only. All right? And so what it does is it helps us to understand the context of this rugged, um, you know, like, like this king has so much power, he's going to even ask his queen to walk out in this situation. I want you to see this, that either way that plays out, because we don't know for sure, but either way, it's an incredibly and purely objectifying moment where he wants to put his own wife's beauty on display before all of these people. Continuing verse 12, it says, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in the matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shithar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. All right, so he's going for some counsel. It continues here. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. Well, they answer this. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. Here's his wise decree. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. And this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of the disrespect and discord. So there's more here than just this perceived correction, more than what the king thinks he's doing, which is just correcting this, what he sees as disobedience, but this resistance for sure from his queen. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that it gets put on, projected onto all of the women of this area. Now what I see this as is more than just this unique, just momentary thing. It's actually like this assault on women as a whole. Vashti's refusal is interpreted as a coup, which could lead to all the women joining in and an upheaval. And then what would be left of our kingdom if such a thing happened? The king concludes further decree, and this is what it says, that every man should be master over his own household. Now, it's interesting that great fear for these men, uh, from these men, 
is that women may no longer be obedient <laughs> and social discord would ensue. Now, it sounds exaggerative, right? Like it sounds like there's, it, it, it does come across theatrically, right? Like maybe this is an exaggeration, but I've actually heard this argument before in our day and age from certain um, uh, more conservative and I would say restrictive viewpoints such as complementarianism. Now, I know that because I, I used to vouch for that. I used to teach that in, in, um, in churches that I used to be at. And the idea um, would be behind the scenes like, man, if you let this thing go, if women start preaching, if you start having these conversations, man, and this is not an exaggeration. It's like the whole framework of society and family as we see it will completely become unfounded and it will come crashing to the ground. Like, are, are you serious? So families, the social landscape that we've built, all of society is in danger if you what? I hear quite literally, let a woman serve communion? That's not a joke. That was a real battle. In this thing comes this idea that if you allow women to have too many opinions in the home or too much power in the church, here the right of refusal in an uncomfortable situation and even dangerous, like these are drunk people that he wants to parade his wife in front of, that it's all going to fall apart. And the idea is, in my opinion, just this attempt to utilize fear-mongering, sensationalized conclusions like the ending of the world if you allow a woman to have an opinion, if you allow them to have power, and really what we see is weak men trying to hold on to power that they see slipping through their fingers. Now these men make a decision that reveals their hand. When I read this, I see evidence of fear. I see evidence though also of something behind it, and I think it, it, it's not too much to say this. There is this relentless, and I would say wicked, demonic even, power, this thing that empowers and, and creates this force of patriarchy that has historically bent towards the subjugation of women. And this is what I want to say to us. Don't buy it. It's trash. It's fear-mongering. It's the presence of weak men trying to hold on to power because they see it slipping through their fingers. In fact, I want to encourage us all to fight against that, to righteously resist it. And I want to say to men who have authority in a patriarchal structure to invite women to speak into the highest levels of authority in whatever organization you happen to have some semblance of power in. Amen? Queen Vashti is something of a mixed figure in faith communities. And she's not the point of this story, but I just felt like it was important to note her that there is even a telling, like, like not everyone agrees that she is a hero inside of this. In fact, there's one folk telling of this where she gets leprosy and actually grows a tail in one telling of this. But more recently, I love this, we see this honor and respect being put on Queen Vashti. As early as the 19th century, her resistance to her husband's wish to use her as a sex object made her an icon for early feminists. Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote in 1878 that Vashti's decision was the first stand for women's rights and that we shall stand amazed that there was a woman found at the head of a Persian empire that dared to disobey, disobey the command even of a drunken monarch. 
Now, I love that we get to kind of see this in our time. I know that's not what Esther and the book of Esther meant to put her in this position, but I like that from our perspective, we get to look back and see, man, maybe I would have been behind Vashti in that situation, even though the story is setting up something else for Queen Esther. And so in in contrast to fearful decisions of men, the queen was courageous in her resistance, and she endured the consequences of those in authority. Then she was deposed of her throne. Now, now we know at least that's exile, but probably eventually once she was replaced, led to execution. That's not 100% sure, but we know uh, she is separated and loses this. But I wanted to point out one more thing. I thought this was just a beautiful way to look at this. One interpreter that I read, and this is just my paraphrase, but that Vashti, in honoring her as an educator... She sacrificed her crown or even her life so that through trial and error, a future queen could learn from her attempt and adjust strategies for a future generation's victory. In her refusal, she paved the way for the next queen to try a different route and become successful, which is exactly what happens. And I love that look. I love that she gets to step into this Queen Esther looking, well, okay, I learned some things from the way that that happened. I'm going to make some adjustments, but we're still going to be courageous in our moving forward. Now, Vashti's situation sets the readers up. This is, this is what the narrative is mostly meant to do. We see what happens to Vashti, and we realize that there are some dire consequences for anyone who comes against this king. All right, so we know that that's happened. We know the temperament of this king. We know what he's up to and what he tends to do. So as we move forward and we see the things that we're going to see Esther do, then we know that there could be a very big consequence that she will likely be dealt with similarly as Vashti was. And so in order to to replace the queen, Xerxes decides to set up the biggest bachelor season the kingdom has ever seen. (laughs) Ever. And it was more than just a beauty pageant. It's also an entrance into this kind of harem wherein people are uh, trained and then tested of their sexual capacities. Now, it's important for us to catch that. This young girl who is orphaned but taken in by Mordecai is entered into this, and her name is actually Hadassah. That's her Hebrew name. If you go into a Jewish community, you will find many young ladies named Hadassah. But her Persian name is Esther, and I'll use that just so we don't get confused through the rest of this sermon. Again, two views that we have to look at that tend to surface, because what, what is Esther doing entering into this pageant? Well, we don't know if she is entered or if, if she enters in willingly, but, but there's two kind of ideas that tend to rise to the surface when commentators talk about this, both in Christian and Jewish circles. One is that Esther engages in some pretty sketchy actions in order to gain this position. After all, it was a pleasure contest wherein she was supposed to win the king's approval in one night staying with him. Now, the second, though, is that she diverged from the more lewd expectations of the king and instead entertained him with her intellect, with her wisdom, and by the telling of stories. It's true, if it's true that Esther used the typical parameters of the contest to gain her position, this is something that I want us to consider. Uh, if, if she did enter into it, and it was by what some would call sketchy means, I want you to think of two words, redemption and survival. By redemption, what I mean is Esther's story eventually positions her in a place where God can use her for a greater good, 
And so a story of redemption is told beside, despite her potential sketchy history. And this is what I want us to level with, is that I think that many people in here, if we're honest, we've gotten where we have gotten possibly by some sketchy means. Maybe by some bad decisions, maybe by some dishonest gains. And so even if this is true, what we get to pull out of this is, man, God still, nobody is beyond redemption. God uses anyone in spite of anything. That's redemption. And we all get to be encouraged by a story of redemption. But what I think probably happened more is survival. By this I mean that to be a woman in this kind of patriarchal society is to be a survivalist. There isn't an option. So you have to exist in a context where you're forced to make compromising decisions, negotiate horrific situations in order to maintain your life and the life of those in whom you love. After all, she just saw what happened to Queen Vashti, right? Her life very well could be on the line. And so the application is a little different in that situation. It's that we should take in, into consideration that that was her situation, have a little grace on it. Also take into consideration that that's not new. There are plenty of people living in that kind of survival mode today. And so the, the application is that can we be a society that changes the fabric of what we operate in today the frameworks of which our, our social landscape are built on so that no woman is ever positioned in this same way so that they believe the best thing for them to do is to enter into a sex contest. Redemption, at least, survival probably. Though we don't know which one is accurate, and there's evidence in both to support both of these sides. By and large, the second narrative tends to be the one that's embraced um, amongst Christians and Jews. So I just feel like it seems like a sanitized version, if, if you ask me. After entering this contest, though, Esther is accepted into the king's harem where she gains more and more favor. Check this out. Esther chapter 2, verse 15, kind of later on in that verse, part B. Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet. For all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, directly following this, it, on top of the favor in which Esther has already received, her, her adopted um, uncle, father, kind of, it's hard to know, it's just kin, her adopted kin, Mordecai, just so happens to be in the right place at the right time to hear that there are a group of people planning an assassination attempt on King Xerxes. He tells that, uh, he tells that to Queen Esther. Esther verifies it. It turns out to be true, and they put an end to that. So the king not only is already just like, this, you're great, but now he's like, man, you all looked out for me. You saved my life potentially. Mordecai is honored. Esther is honored. And both of them have even more influence by the end of that chapter. And then the next section. Now this is where 
I, I, was, I had it all worked out. I was going to grab that bucket and start pretending to eat popcorn in front of you. This is where the whole thing deepens. The plot thickens. There's some twists. There's some turns. Like you dig in on this moment if it's a movie and you're ready for this to really take action because all the rest of this has just been setting the stage for a very complicated, intricate set of variables that become the plot of Esther. And while Esther is brought into this unique role of authority, she's still going to have to exercise courage. She's still going to have to be tested in her resolve to move through with what is being asked of her. And so you enter onto the scene this guy by the name of Haman. Oh, we did it. Yes. Right side. Where you at? I wondered if it was going to happen. He is a prototypical villain. He's written that way. He's meant to be this. He, he, he existed on a plane that makes him this, and, and I want to say not always are our conflicts this cl- clear and dry, but that's what this story is meant to make clear. He hates Mordecai for not bowing down to him in public, and by extension, he hates the Jews, and so he figures out a way to get all of the Jews killed based on a king's decree, which cannot be undone. And so Mordecai asks Esther, go before the king, beg him. Please beg him not to let this happen. And and the problem is that even the queen doesn't have direct access to the king. And he's kind of in this middle of this really, um, we're not sure what happened. If he was depressed, if he was in great thought, if he was fasting, if he was mourning, if he was strategizing. We have no clue. But he's in this weird time of reclusion where he's not asking anyone to come to him. And so Esther, in in her right mind, is like, hey, Mordecai, not the best time. This guy's not doing well. He's just been hanging out in his throne room just by himself all day long for like 30 days. We should try and revisit this a different time. And this is what you see Esther kind of like, first she says, this isn't going to work out. And this is what happens. uh, Chapter 4, verse 11, it says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Note Esther initially says, no, Mordecai appeals in a different way. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back the answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now it's possible that Esther, who is now Esther, who is now in a position of authority, could kind of just keep quiet on the fact that she's a Jew. She can ignore this whole thing, and as much as she hates that her kinsmen's lives are in danger, she might live if no one finds out. But Mordecai reminds her, and he kind of hides some things inside of the text that I'll point out, that the way Mordecai writes this together, he's like, look, you, you, could, you could ignore it, but it's not a guarantee. It might get found out, and you're going to get killed as well. But also, this rabbi, Rabbi Foreman says this, that verse 14, for you, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for, your, for the Jews will arise from another place. He's like, asserting that God will do something. I, I, I trust God. But he also verbatim quotes something from the book of Numbers, which essentially infers this. You can do something or you can do nothing and you may live. It's not 100% guaranteed, but you can be sure that by remaining silent, you are complicit to these deaths. 
and you can be sure that you are condoning the injustice, which is as bad as doing it yourself. Now, I want to say this is a great rule for any person in any kind of authority position, in any kind of majority context that has the ability to speak into lives, that by being silent, you are actually participating in whatever evil is taking place. And so I want to encourage us based on that to be those who speak up, who don't remain silent when injustice is taking place. Now, this is the key line, though, in the entire book. Who knows? It's like speculative almost from Mordecai. Who knows? Maybe you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, that last bit becomes the paramount line for this. For such a time of this is an affirmation that God's sovereign hand is, is here even though he isn't mentioned. That God's desire to position and use leaders and, 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 and his encouragement to her and to us today is that we would know God can use us in his timing. That you may have a for such a time as this moment in your life. And maybe it's to accomplish something small, but maybe it's something great that God has in store for you. Perhaps even to intervene on the mass death of a community such as Esther. And the question is, will you be courageous? Will you move forward into it? In this moment, we are supposed to be on edge. Right? This is the part where you put the popcorn down, you lean in because the tension is really high. We don't know what Esther's going to do. And this protagonist might be doubting themselves, like, this isn't the right timing, I don't know if it's going to work out. Uh, what if we get killed? Then no, there's no one to help anyone on the other side of this. Right? There's always that point in the movie, that low, where the protagonist loses hope, starts to doubt, doesn't know if we can get the win. So we're all sitting here in this moment of the story. Is she going to do it? Is she not going to do it? What's going to happen? And this is what Esther does in the words, uh, sorry, with Mordecai's response. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. It's like the, the music kicks in, right? Again, that movie scenario where you're like, she, she's going to do this. Like, oh my gosh, we're, we're back in play. This is actually going to happen. She's going to go for it. The bass drop happens, right? Like all these things take place. When you're in that environment, here we go. Chapter 5, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. In front of the king's hall, the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance, when he saw King Esther standing in the court. Pause. What's going to happen next? He was pleased with her. He held out his golden scepter that was in his hand, so Esther approached and touched the tip of the, of the scepter. That's the accepting of the kind of the, the rules of engagement. Then, king, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom is going to be given to you. Now, this is, if, this is like crowd goes wild moment. Like, oh my gosh, it worked. She could have died. He could have just gone through with it. But it worked. Like, he, he, he did it. She did it. So what are you going to do with this moment, Esther? The green light is there. Everyone is saved. The story ends happily ever after. But there's five more chapters in this book if you didn't look ahead. 
And Esther kind of flips the script on us. Verse 4, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So instead of asking for an immediate solution, Esther moves forward with an even more complicated, intricate, this like game of chess moment. So pick whatever movie you could relate that to as complicated as it could possibly get so that you get to a point of like, dude, I don't, this is, this is just like harebrained. Like, I don't have any clue how this is all going to work together. And even Jewish scholars throughout the years have kind of scratched their head. Why did you do this? Just take the win now, Esther. I'm not going to read the rest to you. I'm going to kind of give a quick little summary. And again, I want to encourage you to read it this week. But Esther is so wise. This is what the rabbis comment on. Esther is so wise, so shrewd, so strategically adept and brilliant that she creates a set of circumstances that play out ironically to cover even more ground than just the salvation of the Jews. She considers the pride of the king and the rulers being exposed. It works against them in this situation, right? Even the, the situation towards the end as the king walks in and sees uh, Haman in, the, in these situations, she's like stoking the anger and the jealousy, the tendency for this king to move in that direction. The villains indict themselves. They out themselves. The king's tendency uh, towards these things is leveraged so that the benefit of Esther's plan goes as it was supposed to. God intervenes, and I don't want to exclude that because there is this point where, where even, the, even as Esther is not in control, the king is being read to in the middle of the night because he can't sleep. And it reminds him of the moment that Mordecai was good to the king. And he's like, hey, what, what happened to that guy? I haven't seen him in a while. And what happens over the next couple chapters is this complicated drama. It poetically unfolds. It's like this evenly set, balanced circumstances wherein all of the ways in which we have dug ourselves down into the tension gets addressed, addressed, addressed as we pull out and is completely framed perfectly from a literary stance. And what happens here then is that all of these things get brilliantly taken care of to acquire, to maintain a greater sense of justice, a greater sense of balance, a greater sense of righteous, uh, 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 what do I say, righteous award for the resistance. Now, if there's something, if you get to know me, I like movies, I love that I got to kind of make that comparison this week, but if one thing bothers me, and it happens all the time in, I guess, romantic comedies, is when like the, the part at the end that's supposed to make up for all the bad things that happen, like someone did a messed up back here, doesn't balance out with the offense. And so you get to the end, you're like, yeah, I mean, like, great, thanks, but like, you really screwed up, and this is not at all worth like one apology was not the, the end-all be-all for this situation that did here. And I often feel like that coming out of a movie, Esther is built completely in opposition to that. Very strategically, every offense that is brought up, every tension is then un, uh, 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 addressed and then, uh, I don't even, uh, uh, released, I guess. That's the opposite of tension. Released. And all the way you have this complete book that even to this day, some of the Jews will say, this is the greatest story ever told. It is so perfectly done. All right, I'm going to quit geeking out about this literary structure, and let's move on to some application. Um, I believe that in Esther, you have a hero who is worthy of your admiration, whether you are male or you are a female inside of this room. 
She is meant to inspire you no matter where you're at because she was given this platform of authority to help and she acted courageously. She acted in God's time. She acted in a way that was pivotal in the moment that needed to be moved inside of the story of the Jews for her good and for the good of her community. So perhaps you identify with her story. Maybe you've been in a situation where you have to decide, am I going to be courageous, am I going to do this, or am I not going to do this? Maybe you identify with her story, her situation. You have authority, position, and power. Esther, to you, is this encourager. She's in the corner telling you, take that risk and cast your lot with God. Take the risk. Even if it costs you something, be courageous. Stand up, speak out, stick up for those who cannot speak for themselves. This is something of a theme for this entire series, Righteous Resistant, and we see the very personification inside of Esther. And maybe you identify with Esther because you have done it. And you look back on your story and Esther got you through that moment. And you thought, man, she would be proud of this because Esther's encouraging me and I did this. And so there's a such a time as this moment. But maybe there's a future such a time as this moment for you to be thinking about uh, that is still ahead of you. And I want to say take heart in that given situation. Maybe it worked out for your good. Maybe it worked out for the good of others. May your example be added to Esther's to encourage the rest of us in our such a time as this moment. But perhaps you identify with Vashti. You stood your ground, you spoke up, you refused to compromise, and the right thing did not happen. You became an example for future generations to tread the path and win, but your, your moment was not a win. It's even possible that you did the hard work you knew you were righteous. This isn't just my pride. This isn't just uh, an odd circumstance. This is not just a, the, you know, a, a, a low stakes situation, but like I know my heart's right. I'm going to step into this gap, but it did not. You lost the job or you, you gave up that authority. Maybe you were deposed. Maybe you were even in danger. I don't know. Maybe it led to your defeat and the defeat of others, and that hurts even deeper. And this is what I want to do to you God uses everything. We see how God uses the situation of Vashti to eventually create a win down the way. And to you, I also want to say thank you for doing the right thing even though nobody else saw it. And to rest in knowing that God saw it when you did it and he is, you have helped and participated in the movement of the kingdom of God without recognition. And if that's you, I want to recognize you wherever you're at today. Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, I, th I think so. Maybe, yeah. Like, yeah. And may the applause be for you in this day, the encouragement of Christ, who says, keep it up. Don't grow weary in doing what is good. Keep moving in righteous resistance. And we don't know the fullness of our circumstances, but we do know the God that we serve. And I don't know that every moment of righteous resistance you engage in is going to end well, or if it will end in, uh, in deposition and maybe even some sense of failure. But do know that through one means or another, God is working all circumstances together for the redemption of this world. And whether we see the fruit ourselves, or we are part of a greater story in which we find ourselves a smaller player in it than we thought we would play, that we would still play it for that end victory. 
And if it is in the will of God, we know that we are to contribute to this ultimate victory that we can find in Christ Jesus. And I want to pray for us here as we transition. And we're going to lift our voices again as we respond to one another. But wherever you find yourself in that, would you just stop and recognize that before God? And maybe you need a moment of lament and say, hey, God, like, why did, why, I was right. I did what was right. Why didn't you come through? And maybe even ask him, God, could you speak to that for me? If maybe that's caused you to trust God less, ask him to restore that trust, to give you insight as to what was going on. And if not, that if you are a part of a victory, maybe it's time for you to tell that story to others, not out of selfish pride, but just as a way to say, hey, sometimes we stand up against the powers and against all odds, God steps in and victory can happen. Don't believe that it cannot. Let's pray. So thank you, Lord, for the, the, the witness of Esther and Vashti, the, the witness of those in this room right now who have had similar circumstances to Esther and Vashti, God. And I pray that in this month, as, as women are being recognized um, in a way that they probably should just be all the time, that we would join in that recognition and move the, the dial on, on, on where our society is at on this. So inspire courage in the hearts of men and women across this congregation. And Father, I pray for a change in the landscape that fear and fear-mongering would, be, uh, would lose their potency in the face of righteous resistance, that courage would be seen all the way into victory, and that you would make clear to us what time it is we live in and what battles we are supposed to fight, Lord. And so as valleys rise and mountains fall, God, so let it be so in our community on behalf of women uh, in our city and in our country and across this globe, Lord. Whatever has to be made low to make that happen, God, would you get our hearts ready and settled to deal in? Father, we want your kingdom more than we want our kingdom, and we ask for this right now in Jesus' name. Amen.